Uh, good morning, St. Clair. It's, you can say good morning, even though I might not hear you. <laughs> it's good to be with you. Uh, I would like it if you would imagine with me your version of the quintessential Christmas, the sort of most like perfect, idyllic Christmas. What does that scene look like? What is going on in your little perfect Christmas snow globe world? Would I be right to assume that uh, for most of us, maybe a show of hands, it would involve a fireplace? Is anyone, is anyone you know, sternly opposed to fire? Okay. <laughs> My, you know, it's a total luxury, but, you know, everything aside, if everything was equal in the world, I just think, oh, probably the world would be a better place if everyone just had a Christmas place fire to cozy up to and all their fear and hate would just melt away. Things would just be better, wouldn't it? Yes, I heard a yes. <laughs> the tradition uh, with my in-laws is that we, off, we have a gas fireplace in the one corner and in addition in front of us on the TV is the fireplace channel running simultaneous to the actual fire in the corner. And it's riveting, right? Have you ever watched this? It's just a fire that runs 24 hours a day. And like every once in a while, you have a, this like lumberjack arm that reaches in and pokes at the fire. And it's this exciting moment. That's, that's the thrill of Christmas morning with, uh, with my in-laws. <laughs> there is, I think there is something about fire, though. I've been thinking about this. that I just think it's, it's pretty amazing. It has... I think in a lot of different circumstances, a very kind of powerful effect. In any other situation, if you had a group of people sitting in a circle, just staring, speechless, it would be very awkward. Unless you put a fire in the middle on this nice summer night, then it feels perfectly normal. You're like, there's just, there's something that I takes place around a fire. I think about my own life, and I've had many meaningful conversations, many meaningful moments that just happen to be around a fire. Our friend Joe Steinke talks about it as fire therapy. There's just like a good place for conversation and contemplation. In my own life, actually, as I thought about last year, I was able to have a few days at a Catholic hermitage on the west coast of Ireland, which sounds not bad. And I just spent a few days in silence and solitude on my own. And when I returned home, my wife, Jen, asked me, well, what, what was your time like? And I was like, ah, I, I'm pretty sure I just looked at a fire like all day, just thinking, praying, journaling. There was a lot of hours that just got spent being mesmerized by this fire, and it gave me space to contemplate and sort of gaze upon the fire. And when I, I began to realize, it's just sort of with a new reflection in my life, was how much I actually just longed to know God like a fire, and that the cold parts of me would be warmed by him. And there was something about just looking at a fire that was helping me to process that and chew on that. God often has been referred to, has been talked of, as to be like a fire. Many times in Scripture, God is described 
to be like a fire. And there's actually these moments where his manifest presence actually comes in the form of fire. And the saints throughout the ages have also claimed this kind of experience of knowing God like fire, that God's presence is like both light and heat that you get from a fire. And people have talked about how the experience of faith is like keeping a flame lit. John Wesley said very famously of his conversion experience, of him encountering Jesus, that it was this moment where he felt his heart strangely warmed. You heard that before? A.W. Tozer also describes the life of following Jesus in this way. He says, to have found God and still to pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. And he says, it's like being touched by a flame that just keeps burning. And in effect, we become children of burning hearts. That's how he describes the life of faith. And so here we have Luke 3, where we have John the Baptist, a prophet who is preparing the way, a messenger sent from God to make everyone ready for the coming Messiah. And here he is talking about one more powerful than him, one who's going to come like fire, who's going to baptize with fire. And let me be honest, I don't actually think I know what that means, but I'm going to try this morning, okay? If you will go there with me. The mention of fire would not have been lost on the crowds that were listening to John the Baptist. Him mentioning fire would have made sense to them, at least in some respects. God first made a covenant with Abraham with a blazing torch. God accepts their sacrifices that are made with fire. God appeared to Moses in a burning bush. God led his people through the desert with a pillar of fire by night. God answered Elijah against the prophets of Baal with fire from heaven. For them to hear fire, it's like, oh, okay, this means something. All this would have been in the conscience of the crowd as they hear John's words. And if that wasn't enough, the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, Malachi, they're hearing John talk about the axe being at the root of the tree and that every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. To us, that sounds, or at least to me, it sounds pretty jarring and maybe even sort of abrasive. But the Jewish people hearing this would have said, whoa, 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 whoa. He's talking about something we've heard before. The very last words of the Old Testament in Malachi, you say, I will send the prophet Elijah, which Jesus tells us is John. The day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them, but for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. The Jewish listeners, the crowd, they had a reference point for what John is talking about in this moment. They had a context for hearing these words, and they knew that it fit into this bigger narrative. The only problem is that the next sort of chapter in the story does not go how they think it's going to unfold. John is preparing for one that's more powerful than him. 
John wasn't the fire. That would come with Jesus. He was bringing, like you could feel it, you can hear it. He was bringing some heat in his warning. But Jesus is the light that is to come. And here are the opening words of the Gospel of John. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness testifying concerning the light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. John warns that if you don't hear these things from me, you're not going to receive it when it comes in full through Jesus. If you can't see the hint of light that I'm pointing to right now, John is saying, then you're going to be blind to it when the light appears. And so there was something really, really important to what John was doing to prepare the way for Jesus. His call to repentance was about the reordering of our lives to take care of the exterior because the one coming was going to cut straight to the interior of our lives and reorder our hearts. So John's saying something really important about how we make ourselves ready when the light comes. Luke 3 and Luke chapter 4. I'm going to take some liberty this morning and describe to us what happens in Luke 3 and Luke 4 and how we make sense of all this at Christmas time. So Luke 3, we have this strong, harsh word that comes from John but might have made sense to his listeners. Then in Luke's gospel, we're told that Jesus himself is baptized. He is then sent by the Holy Spirit into the desert where he fasts for 40 days, is tempted and tried. And then out of the desert, Jesus comes full of the Holy Spirit and starts demonstrating and announcing the good news that has now come near, that the kingdom of God is at hand. And he's going out into different regions of proclaiming this. And then comes the moment where he circles back to his hometown of Nazareth. And it says, and this is where it gets exciting if you're following at home. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move up here, guys. So there is this moment where he's in his hometown. He goes into the synagogue. And as was the custom, he unrolls the scroll. And the very first words that we hear from Jesus in his public ministry, you're like, what does Jesus have to tell everyone? Well, he reads from the prophet Isaiah. And this is what he says. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of the sight of, for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's what he says. Rolls the scroll back. He goes and it says in Luke 4 that he goes and he sits down. It says the eyes of everyone in that synagogue was fixed on him. And he knew everyone was watching him. He said, today that reading is fulfilled in your presence. And then it said everyone was in awe of the gracious words that came from his lips. They were like, this is it. This is what John talked about. This is happening right in front of us. It's this amazing moment. 
that's not done. Because <laughs> Jesus knew in this synagogue, in this mix of people, there were some religious folk who were very concerned about protecting their sort of own little spiritual lives. And Jesus knew that they demanded a sign from him. They're like, okay, hey, we've heard you've done miracles in other places, but prove it in your own hometown. Let's see it. And Jesus says, listen, if I did a miracle, you still wouldn't believe it. Because you didn't believe the ones who came before me. So why are you going to believe it now? And then he tells two stories. He references Elijah and Elisha. And he said, they were prophets who loved the refugee, the foreigner, and the enemy. And you rejected them. So you're not going to hear the good news from me. And the crowd turned. They were enamored with him. And then in the very same moment, it says that they were so furious that they grabbed him. Like they physically pulled him up out of the synagogue and took him to a cliff the nearest cliff, and they're getting ready to throw him off the cliff to kill him because they're so mad at what he just said. And then there's this moment that I wish I could have witnessed. It says that Jesus just walked straight through the crowd and went on his way. You're like, bam! Like, that is good stuff! Oh! Like, I just, to imagine what that moment would have been, there was so much going on. Jesus is like, I am the good news that you've been waiting for. I am the fulfillment of this. I am right here. But some of you don't have ears to see it or to hear it or eyes to see it. Jesus' words came like fire. For some, it warmed. And for some, it scolded them. They're hearing the same words. It's often been said of Jesus that he came to comfort the afflicted. And to afflict the comfortable. He's doing both. So what does all this have to do with Christmas? <laughs> You're like, isn't this Advent? <laughs> so, I mean, as you can probably get the impression, I'm not really sure that John the Baptist has a sentimental bone in his body. Right? Like, he just doesn't seem like the Christmas kind of guy. And I certainly do not intend to be a killjoy of Christmas, but perhaps this year of all years, when our ideals are likely being pushed around, maybe this is a good time to simply re-examine why we do what we do. If you've been reading along with our Advent devotionals, you would have heard Thomas Merton's words this week in one of the reflections. He says, it is important to remember the deep and in some ways anguished seriousness of Advent. When the mendacious celebrations of our marketing culture so easily harmonize with our tendency to regard Christmas, consciously or otherwise, as a return to our own innocence. But the church, in preparing us for the birth of a Savior and a King of Peace, has more in mind than seasonal cheer. The Advent mystery focuses the light of faith upon the very meaning of life, of history, of man, and of the world, and of our own being. 
And in Advent, we celebrate the coming and indeed the presence of Christ in our world. So what I'm not asking us to do, I am not asking us to throw away our favorite Christmas traditions. Watch your favorite Christmas movie, which may or may not be Die Hard. That was debated in a Zoom call this week. <laughs> you could talk to Matt about that. He'll, he will claim that one. These favorite Christmas traditions of being cozied by a fire, of eating, of tasting your favorite baked good, of smelling your favorite candle, of listening to your favorite Christmas album. These are all good things. So I'm not saying give up on those things or don't do those things. What I'm saying is actually go even further and let these things engage all of our senses, pull us even deeper into a place of longing for the light to come. And as you do it, remember the poor. Let that be a fire that burns for us this year. Advent is about waiting expectantly like the crowds who heard John. That Emmanuel, God with us, would come and burn in our life in the world and that the warmth and light would come to the cold and dark places of our world and of our own hearts. I think much of the spiritual life, learning to live the life of Jesus, doing the things that Jesus did the way he did them, our way of discipleship, is about learning to stay near to the flame of God's presence in our life, keeping ourselves close to the fire. I think that's a lot of what this whole following Jesus thing is about. And others have spoken to this really well. It wouldn't be a St. Clair sermon if I didn't reference Henry Nouwen. So Henry Nouwen says this. He says, What needs to be guarded is the life of the Spirit within us, especially we who want to witness to the presence of God's Spirit in the world. We need to tend to the fire within with utmost care. Our first and foremost task is faithfully to care of the, for the inward fire so that when it is really needed, it can offer warmth and light to lost travelers. Dorothy Day says this, Early generations of Christians, their faith was a bright fire that warmed more than those who kept it burning. And Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who just passed away, he says, Religion is like fire. It warms, but it also burns. And we are guardians of the flame. Ooh, I like that one. We are guardians of the flame. So where, where do we go? How do, how do we live this out in this mo moment? Perhaps we need a time like Christmas, a season like Advent, to make space for God to come and to be near and to let his presence bring both warmth and light. And very simply, I wonder if our practices of St. Clair is a community of prayer, scripture, generosity can help root us in what's real this Christmas season. As John reminds us, the outer works of our life don't save us, but they do prepare us. 
the exterior disciplines of our life of prayer and scripture and generosity, they alone cannot transform us, but they do serve as good logs that get thrown on the fire that burns within. So, scripture, prayer, generosity. I'm going to highlight these really briefly, and then we'll participate in communion together. You may remember the story in Luke 24, where the risen Jesus is walking along as a stranger to two men. And it was only after the fact that they realized that they had just encountered the risen Jesus. And how they knew it, and how uh, they say it in Luke's gospel, they say, were not our hearts burning within us? While we talked, while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. So here's my question. When was the last time your heart burned reading the scriptures? For all the narratives that are going on in the world right now, it may just be enough to take time to be rooted and well-versed in the story of God that we've been brought into. And if you're looking for an easy place to start, we have these weekly Advent devotionals. There are daily readings of prayer, scripture, and a short reflection to help root us as a community in this practice. If you don't know where to find that, it's under the resource page of our website. There'll be another one that comes out this afternoon. Scripture, prayer, take on a posture of listening and being attentive in the season that Marseille said really well, can be very busy and perhaps distracting. The Irish poet Padre Gotuma says, prayer is a small fire lit to keep cold hands warm. I like that. Spend time praying for the poor, for those in need, and perhaps you will discover a new way of being generous. And generosity, scripture, prayer, generosity. This is actually something we're going to look at specifically again next week. Like Luke 3 again at Christmas? Yeah, we're, we're, going to, we're going to have one more go at it. Because it speaks so well to what it is. Well, it specifically speaks to what it is to give of our food and our clothes to those that have none. And we're going to uh, make more information available for this uh, online this week. But Christmas Eve for us as a community is going to be an online event that's sort of a hybrid of what our carol service would have been, where we would love for you and your family and your friends, neighbors, coworkers to participate in that with us together so that we can raise money and whatever we can for supportive housing in this city, that we as a community can be generous to those who are in need in this time. We want to be generous together. Christmas teaches us to be a people rooted in good news, a good hope as we tend to the fire within. Matt's going to lead us in communion here this morning.